When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, I didn't do this for the money, even though when they say when it's not about the money, it's about the money. But I did this unexpectedly after I had retired from Westwood One and it popped up and I thought, wow, this is too good to miss. Today, we're talking with my good friend, Norm Pattis, one of the most successful and influential businessmen in Los Angeles. If you've ever seen a Lakers game, you've seen him sitting courtside, often yelling at the coaches or the players or both. He has transformed the entire radio, nay, entertainment industry with his ideas and businesses. And now he's aiming to do the same with digital and podcasting. We'll discuss all this as well as how he's become a regent at UCLA, an appointee of both Bush and Clinton, as well as how business intersects with influence, political and otherwise. Now, let's hear from Norm Pattis. You were so early in the radio syndication model that I, I tried to find who was doing it before you, and I couldn't find anybody. There did, you, did you invent it, kind of? Well, you know, it's hard to say invent, who knows, but on a large scale, we were certainly at Westwood One, the first ones to go out and create sort of a Viacom syndicated radio and take it to national advertisers because there was a syndication business, but it was mostly cash. You know, the radio stations paying 40 bucks a week for American Top 40. 40 bucks a week? Oh, yeah. Just because it's like it was better than zero? Well, you know, 40 bucks a week was a lot more back then. <laughs> but not that much more. Was it Casey Kasem? Yeah, it was Casey. But, you know, he had four or 500 radio stations. So that was enough to support the company that produced him, a company called Watermark. But then... We were probably the first player to go to national advertisers to support syndicated radio shows of any consequence. How did you find a market opportunity where there was no market opportunity? I mean, what were you, things were you looking at back then? Or was it just like you're having a beer one night, you thought, this is a good idea that nobody's doing? It always happens because you find yourself in a circumstance, you know, in circumstances that you uh, never planned for. I was uh, the sales manager at a television station here in Los Angeles. And it was KCOP, which at the time stood for Keep Changing Our Programming. <laughs> we referred to ourselves as the number one station in the market because we had more ones than anybody else. Nice. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure that's the metric. No, it isn't. It isn't for sure. But I was sort of unceremoniously dispatched. I heard this. Yes, I was fired for the new general manager's younger brother. And that was a few days before I was getting married. I read that it was three days before your wedding. That's correct. So if I hadn't moved fast, there would have been one uh, noticeably empty table at my reception. Yeah. I mean, I was borderline devastated. I mean, I was the ultimate company man. I really liked that job. My strategy at the time was to go become the general manager of a major market television station. You know, fate threw me a curveball. So I spent a little longer on my honeymoon in Hawaii. Right. And when I got back, I ran into a friend of mine who was trying to syndicate a radio show, didn't really know how to do it. And he said, uh, you know, why don't you help me do this? You know, I didn't know anything about radio syndication, but there's one universal law 
that I have found, which is if you don't know the rules, you can't be limited by them. Nice. Yes. Yeah. Because you don't know what you're breaking because you don't even know they exist. Sure. You're not setting out to do anything wrong. You're setting out to accomplish a goal. And if you break a rule that's um, really a bad one, somebody's going to let you know and you're going to have the opportunity to change direction. I knew from the television business where syndication was commonplace that you could go to advertisers and they could buy advertising directly from you as a syndicator. That was not common in radio because radio syndication, you know, was all paid for. You know, radio stations pay a set amount to carry a radio program, a syndicated radio program. And it wasn't really even that much. This guy was in the process of trying to produce a 24-hour radio special called The Sound of Motown. That puts a little bit of a date on what we're talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was... um, if you can remember the year that Diana Ross did Love Hangover, you're spot on. My parents went to college, I think, with Diana Ross and Casey Kasem. At sure. The, maybe not college with Casey, but my mom knew who he was back in the 60s or something. Oh, sure. Look, he wound up working for Westwood One for 10 years. We lured him away from uh, Watermark and ABC. You know, so I knew Casey very well. When this friend of mine and I were listening to a local radio station in town, I think it was KGFJ, And it was, uh, you know, what was referred to at the time as a soul station (laughs) that we would refer to today as an urban station. Or R&B or whatever. Or whatever. I don't know what it was. It was interesting that they were playing a 52-hour Motown weekend all weekend long, which as I got more knowledge about radio, found out that that was a pretty common thing to do, especially on holidays. So we took a meeting. We went down to KGFJ with the general manager of KGFJ. I remember him, a guy named Arnold Shore, and he set up a meeting with Motown Records. A week later, we're producing a 24-hour radio special called The Sound of Motown for national syndication. Just like that? Yeah, just like that. My partner wound up, you know, sort of tilting in the process and leaving. I had the whole project in my lap. I knew a lot of advertisers from my days in television, and I went to them, and I managed to secure four national advertisers. And the program aired on a couple of hundred radio stations. I didn't know that you don't air urban radio programs on what were perceived as white top 40 radio stations. Really? Back then, yeah, right? Yeah, so 50% of the stations that carried the sound of Motown were white top 40. I thought of Motown as pop music. And so I was able to convince enough of those guys that, hey, you know, it's pop music. So, Well, my dad's cousin was a VP at Motown, along with a thousand other people. Right. That that place was like that. But it was loaded with people of every skin color. So I think it just depended maybe on the market. In Detroit, it was white people and African-Americans were interested in Motown, period. You got canned from your TV sales job, and that's what caused you to start your own company instead of... Was it partly because, look, I don't want to be on the whims of what other people are going to do if they can just yank the plug that quickly? Were you kind of scared about getting a different job and having the same thing happen? I was pissed. Yeah. I was pissed, and I thought, I'll show them as if they cared. You yeah, know, they probably they didn't care. If they cared, they wouldn't have fired me. Right. But for me, that was a big part of my motivation. I'll show you. Yeah. And, of course, the idea of being in business for myself eventually seemed like a good idea. But it isn't what motivated me to go out and do this. What motivated me was I was canned. And so, you know, adversity can create opportunity. That's exactly what it did for me. How long have you been married to the same woman? 35 years. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Not only is that unusual, this is Hollywood. This is like you might be the only guy in Hollywood who has 
had just one wife and is... Well, I didn't say I only had one wife. I said I've been married to Mary for 35 years. Well, I misspoke that. Mary is my third wife. I didn't know that. I'm really, really old. As a matter of fact, as you know, we've started a podcast with Norman Lear. Oh, uh, yeah, I did. And one of the reasons we started that podcast was so that I would feel young. You, Larry <laughs> King, and Norman Lear. That's right. Larry, Norman, and the kid. That's, That's right. what you can call it. That's right. <laughs> we should do a podcast together. That's really, really funny. That might be one of the bigger reasons for your success, and I'm curious what you think about that, because you had fewer distractions because you were married to somebody for a long time, happy home with some support, no expensive divorces, which is how a lot of guys who do well in this town, I think, do yeah, less I a, well. I had a couple of inexpensive divorces. Right. Because yeah. at the time, I didn't have any money, you know, so they were they seemed like they were expensive, but, you know, I gave away everything just to be able to keep the company. Yeah. Yeah, worked out well. I mean, you didn't have your company before, right? No, you were engaged to uh, marry. No. So when you got fired, what did she do? I mean, she must have been rattled a little bit because you had a wedding in three days. Mary uh, is a real pro, you know, and I credit a huge portion of whatever success that I've had to her. I mean, you know, she started out in San Francisco uh, with Tom Donahue, <laughs> you know, who was sort of the father of progressive rock and roll on FM and then wound up you know, in Los Angeles on KMET, where she became the highest rated disc jockey on the radio station. Yeah. When I was researching you, there was almost maybe even more written about her from back in the day. Yeah. Because she was like friends with all the rock stars. Well, that's how we got access. Yeah. What was at that time a short 90 second rock feature that was mostly an interview feature and a few headlines of what was going on, you know, in that world. You know, she did an interview with uh, Bruce Springsteen. And at the time, I think it was the only interview that Bruce Springsteen ever did, because that was back when local DJs picked their own music. And she got on Bruce Springsteen right away. And I think it's generally credited with breaking Bruce Springsteen on the West Coast. She had the first interview. You know, I was told this by Bruce's manager. When people used to call about getting an interview with Bruce, he would say, well, talk to Mary Turner. She's got one. Maybe she'll let you use it. Wow. Yeah. And of course, I wouldn't let her. Yeah. Anybody. No, <laughs> definitely not. Exclusive. Sorry. Yes. That's funny. Back when DJs used to pick their own music, because I, I know some professional morning show hosts and things like that, and their entire career, they've never been able to pick their own music. And these guys have been working for 15 years. Oh, yeah. More. In order to be a big hit in the days of early progressive rock and, you know, and the FM band, uh, you know, starting to become popular. It was based on the relationship between the host and his audience, kind of like podcasting, don't you think? Yeah. But Good call. that relationship wasn't founded by the personal connection of talk radio. It became prevalent because these were DJs who had the knack to pick the right music for their audience and our audience just kept coming back because if you listen to Mary Turner Monday through Friday, six to 10 o'clock, you knew what you were going to hear, the kind of music that you were going to hear. And that's where that audience went. And you're one of the cool kids because you heard the newest stuff that day that she got it. Nobody else had heard before. Oh yeah, absolutely. That was back in the days when no radio station owner could own more than five AMs or five FMs in the country. Yeah. Not in the city, but in the country. So you had radio wars going on, you know, because there were two or three different radio stations in the same format. Sure. Today, one company owns all of the stations in that format. 
Sure. What is it? Clear Channel? I don't even know. Who's yeah, in, Clear Channel is the biggest, uh, which is Clear Channel, formerly Clear Channel, now iHeart. Right. And uh, Cumulus, which is now the owner of Westwood One, is the second biggest. And then there's a bunch of up-and-coming groups that are sort of fighting for their position. And uh, one of the company, one of the really great radio broadcast groups today is Hubbard Broadcasting, which owns 30% of us. Right. What do you think is going to happen with iHeart? They're bankrupt as all hell, right? They're underwater big time. So they're going to have to sell off some of their stations. So are they going to go back to individual stations or smaller groups and conglomerates owning this? What do you think is going to happen in the industry? Look, ultimately, when you've got as much debt as they have and you don't have the cash flow to service it, you know, it becomes... What's a word that we can use on a podcast for pissing contest? Well, let's just call it a yeah, pissing contest. sure. Between the lenders and the company. Yeah. Because the lenders, in fact, wind up being the people who determine whether they're going to take that company away from management and own it themselves, or whether they have enough faith in management to be able to change the terms of a deal so that management can live with it yeah. and go on. So, you know, if they don't find a way to pay their bills, which is the interest that they owe to lenders, then there probably is going to be some kind of uh, filing, some kind of a chapter 11 or chapter 7 or something, which is bankruptcy. How do you think that's going to go for podcasting? Well, I don't think one really has anything to do with the other one. I think podcasting has found itself its own niche, and it's getting stronger and stronger and stronger, because in this day and age of consumers wanting to consume media when they want. You know, podcasting is a big, big advantage there because if you're a fan of a radio station morning show and you're listening to it on the way to work, when you get to the office, you have to turn off the program and it's gone forever. If it's a podcast or it's available on demand, you can listen to it whenever you want. Or if you're listening to it in your car, which is really, really easy, you can hit the pause button and Pick it up when you're available. Yeah, of course. I mean, everybody listening to this, I hope, knows how podcasting works. That's and sure. by the way, you're basically a humble guy. There's a lot of people listening to this podcast. Maybe not this one with me as the guest, <laughs> but there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast. You, you, you have a very successful podcast, and, and I congratulate you on that. Thanks. I appreciate that. It only took me 10 years to figure out what the hell is going on, and now hopefully it'll just keep growing. You changed the entire entertainment business with the syndication model. You centralized a lot of the media delivery, consolidated a lot of the content providers, because now you have the only one I even know off the top of my head right now is the Casey Kasem Top 40, which was sure. also on television. That was everywhere. Everybody listened to that, U.S. and Canada, for that matter. Oh, yeah. All over the world, actually. Yeah, I would imagine. And his voice is so famous that when I hear it now, I immediately recognize it, even though I was probably eight years old or something like that. Yeah, right when I was watching that stuff, how do you even hone your instincts on which shows will be winners? Because you make decisions pretty quick. I've heard you talk about shows, which I won't name, here in Podcast One, and you go, all right, this one's not setting the world on fire, next. Because you're testing a lot of shows, but how do you even make a guess as to which ones are gonna be successful? What are you looking for? Well, first of all, we're looking for the size of the audience. That they bring in already. Yeah, ideally, what you want from a podcast host is somebody who has, you know, the equivalent of audio TVQ, okay? Yeah. TVQ is simply a measurement of how popular somebody is. But that same measurement works for us. So you try and bring somebody who's 
well-known to a lot of people. And then if that personality or subject matter has a strong social media following, that's really good because it's easy to get to their fans. At Podcast One, we've got over 200 podcasts that are downloaded in the last 12 months were downloaded over a billion, 500 million times. That's wow. a lot of downloads, yeah. which computes into a lot of unique listening, tens of millions and more of unique listeners. If you have the ability to promote to everybody who listens to a Podcast One program, which we do, right? Sure, that's a big, big plus for a podcast that's on our network. So you take a look at the size of the audience, and if you're able to monetize that audience with either direct response advertisers who have sponsored this business and supported this business for years, or now with major national brand advertisers, and you see the revenue start rolling in, well, then you know you got a hit. Yeah. If you don't have audience and you don't have revenue, and you've given it enough time to build on its own, then maybe it's not such a good idea to continue. You know, I mean, the second coming of Jesus Christ is a 50-50 proposition in the entertainment <laughs> yeah, business. True. And if we had a formula for making hits, that's all we'd make. But in the podcasting business, as you well know, the digital information can tell you if an interview has been successful or if it's spiking down. It can inform you about the subject matter that you're including in your program. And if it's a stiff, you can just not include it. Sure. Or yeah. if it trends upward, do more of that. Right. So you're basically, you have to have the company take the risk and test it. There's really no, this guy's going to be huge. I just know it. It's always tested. Well, the first program that we ever produced ourselves after Kit and I went into business together because he was representing podcasting. And Steve if, Austin, right? Yeah, Steve Austin. I knew Steve Austin. I mean, I knew he was Stone Cold Steve Austin from the WWE, but that's yeah. about as much as I knew. My romance with professional wrestling, you know, happened decades before today's sure, yeah. professional wrestling. I would wrestling. imagine. Everybody told me that, you know, he had a big following and he was really good. And we met because I pretty much meet everybody who's going to do a podcast on this network. That's good. What are you looking for when you meet them? You just want to make sure they're not total nightmare to work with? You betcha. Yeah, I bet. I've been around a long time. And in that long period of time, you know, I've had to work with a lot of divas. I can imagine. I don't have to work with divas anymore if I don't want to. I want to meet them. Outgrown the diva. You know, I mean, I, you know, I didn't do this for the money, even though when they say when it's not about the money, it's about the money, because that's how you sort of keep score. But I did this unexpectedly after I had retired from Westwood One, and it popped up and I thought, wow, this is too good to miss. Yeah. You know, so you this just will be fun. And I don't need anybody to give me the money to do it because I have it. I was curious about that myself. Like, why are you still working and doing Podcast One? It's not the money. I mean, you could 30X Podcast One. Probably wouldn't materially change your particular standard of living right now, right? Yeah, probably not. I mean, you know, the investment was a, by entertainment industry standards, it was a modest investment. You know, it was a was under $10 million. Yeah, I looked up Norm Pattis' net worth and then you could afford to lose that if you had to. Well, yeah, that was all pre-tax though. Yeah, oh, there okay, yeah. you <laughs> go. True. So look, I mean, I'm not complaining. Back when I was making that money and uh, the company was a public company and being a public company can make the founders of the company rich guys if they want to be. Sure. You know, back then, the definition of rich was a lot different. 
you know, what I wound up making out of that, I think would still be considered, you know, a pretty good hit. Sure. Yeah. Today. I mean, uh, if you do a top 10 wealthiest people in LA, I don't want to embarrass you, but if you do a top 10 wealthiest people in LA, I mean, you are on that list and you're not at the end of it. I don't know if I'm in the top 10 because I don't count other people's money. I just looked at it because I was curious who the wealthiest person in LA was. Um, that would be Patrick Sunshian. Yes. Whose daughter I went to law school with. Right. I mean, I knew she was wealthy because she had nice stuff, but that was it. I mean, I had no idea that. I know most of the really, really wealthy people because sure. they've all got courtside seats at the Laker games. Right. And so do I. So. Yes, you do. I think I've got four of the eight best seats. You do. In the Staples Center. You Not only do you have courtside Laker seats, you have four and they're good ones. Not that there's any bad courtside seats, but they're certainly better ones and there's great. Well, they're between the scores table and the Laker bench, Yeah, which means it's the difference between being at the game and being in it. In the game. Yeah, exactly. Because every time out, they're standing right in front of you. So you can hear the coach talking to the players and the players talking back to him. You know, I swear when Del Harris was the coach of the Lakers that I actually call plays. <laughs> yeah. You know, I would say, hey, Del, thumb up. I didn't even know what thumb up meant, but I heard him yelling it. So yeah. <laughs> I thought I'd try it. Sure. And, you know, and right after I said it, I heard him yell, thumb up, thumb up. Amazing. I mean, yeah. uh, no, nobody has those kinds of seats. You're actually pretty well known for that. You named the company after that, Courtside Entertainment. When I started uh, Courtside, it was when I left Westwood One, Westwood asked me if I would create something, you know, maybe a, a little consulting business or something so that I could stay connected to a lot of the talent that was at Westwood, that was talent that I had brought in years and years ago or talent that was there because uh, in some way because of me. And I was happy to do it. I didn't need to make any money doing it. You know, they just yeah. paid my expenses. But that's when I created Courtside Entertainment Group, when Andy Bernstein, who's the chief photographer for the NBA, made a bunch of blowups, mostly of Lakers, to put in my office. It was probably many months or a year before I ever thought about what a podcast was. Was getting those seats good for business in some way? Did it brand you in a certain way? Or, or I mean, obviously people ask you to take them to games. That's obviously been an advantage at some point, but because you're kind of known for that, right? It's yeah. like a branding thing. You're the, yeah. Not only are you in Hollywood running a Westwood One or Podcast One or both, depending on when this was happening, you're the guys at all the games or in all the games. Yeah. People see you on TV all the time. For yeah, that the camera positions are on the other side of the court. So... Every time they go up and down the court, our seats are there. But most especially when they call a timeout, you know, when the cameras go straight to the timeout, you know, right. I'm sitting right there in four seats next to Ari Emanuel, who's got the other four seats. A lot of deals get done courtside at Laker games, even now when the Lakers suck. Well, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to not go to those games. There's plenty of people in this town who don't go to as many games or any games unless you know, the team is uh, fighting for a championship. I'm a native. I was born here. I got no complaints with anything that's ever happened to me in Los Angeles. But, you know, I also recognize, at least in the media and entertainment business, it's uh, populated by a lot of front runners. Sure. Yeah, of course. Back to the show in just a minute. But before that, here's a fantastic testimonial from a recent AOC grad. You won't hear it from me, but you'll hear it direct from him exactly how impactful this training can be. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. 
But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. All right, back to the show. You've played the Hollywood game definitely most of your life. You actually have to have a big personality among other big personalities. So have you branded yourself in some way deliberately? Was it like, okay, I've got to be more outgoing or I've got to be a certain way? If I've had to do anything, it's been to, um, you know, put a governor on myself. Tone it down a yeah, little bit? Yeah, shut up. You know, I mean, I was the kid in elementary school. I don't know if they still have it, but, it, you know, in elementary school, there used to be something called the sharing period where okay. everybody who sat in the room at the beginning of the day, the teacher would say, who wants to share? And they would somebody would talk about what they did over the weekend or something that happened to them. And it was a way to, you know, get in front of a lot of people. And I was one of those people who put my hand up before I even had any idea what I was going to say. You just winged it. You're yeah. born there and you were born for radio then. Yeah, I guess that's so. what most of us do anyway. I guess so, even though I was never, you know, behind the mic on radio. You know, I was always sort of drawn to trying to be in some way, maybe if not the center, a center of attention. I'm sure if we delve back into my sure. childhood, we'd find reasons for yeah, that. Yeah, sure. It's not nearly as important to me now, which is interesting because I got a lot of press when I built Westwood One, but it doesn't compare to the press that we've gotten creating Podcast One. And Podcast One is growing almost at exactly the same rate that Westwood One did, but we're still a small company. I mean, you know, we're a small company, but we're way bigger than we were when we started. And... A lot of people look at this, especially in the media and in the press and in the advertising community, what have you, is this is Norm Pattis' second act, is it can be a hit or a miss, you know, and so far, so good. I was much more interested in getting the company into the black than a lot of tech companies who are pre-revenue. Because you didn't want to take on investors? I was funding it with my own money. Sure, I wanted yeah. to know when I could pay myself back. Or just stop the bleeding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I only know one way to market a business, and that's a business that doesn't lose money. Now, <laughs> in the technology business, you can sell a story of how much that technology is going to eventually be worth, and you can tell a story of how many people will eventually consume that technology, which you can sell you know, at great prices. I mean, billionaires are being made, but I don't know how to do that. I know how to run a company that when it loses money, we know why. And we set about 
planning how to get it back in the black. We've set about, you know, a, a fairly standard course of building a business and it's worked well. We had a model for doing this. Yeah. You know, I, we had a model yeah. for doing this. I mean, Westwood One exploded when radio syndication exploded. And when the company was big enough or able to get big enough to become a primary beneficiary of that explosion, we'll probably do the same thing with the next year or two, which is try to roll up as much of the business as we can or different aspects of the business so that we have more revenue generating potential. And of course, the most important thing we have is content. Sure. So we're always looking at new content. We're always adding new content, which means at the same time, the programs that have been tested, you know, and given a two, three months to see if they're going to work out and they don't, you know, we shake hands and nobody seems to mind because, sure. you know, the people who were doing the program weren't making any money. Right. Yeah. And I don't want to have more programs on our lineup that make it more difficult for our partners to make money. Sure, because is it kind of like an election where you just want the few candidates that are going to get the votes? You want the few shows that are going to get the listeners, not a bunch of stuff that's going to make it hard to find what people really like? Um, yeah, you know, a lot of people would take a look at a company like this and say, well, why don't you? Because I could add 200 more podcasts yeah. with a snap of a finger. Yeah. But I don't want to do that since most of our shows are partnerships till all of our partners are making money because I don't think it's right to add a lot of new shows when you're not sold out in your existing shows, or at least making significant dollars for your partners because you're known by the company you keep. Yeah, I think that that definitely makes a lot of sense. You don't want to just slam content in there. And it also makes it harder to just to administrate the whole thing, I would imagine. Yeah, I'm a little bit worried about that because with the move towards a programmatic selling, there are now ways to take a gazillion by a gazillion, I mean thousands mm -hmm. of little bitty podcasts with tiny little audiences, yeah. but very little duplication and sell that to an advertiser through a program at a very low CPM. If we're not careful, and I certainly think we know the way to be careful, it could have a negative effect on our ability to be able to charge premium rates for the programs that are truly special. Because people will say, why should I pay 25 or 35 or $50 CPM for Art of Charm and Stone Cold Steve Austin when I can pay $18 CPM for the same amount of impressions on 500 other shows that yeah, add to that audience? but instead of 18, try two. You know, if you're going to buy it programmatically, the stuff that is sold programmatically right now, and it's not a lot, it's a bidding process, and the people who are buying it are looking for CPMs of 2 and $3. That's super low. Wow. Oh, yeah, it's super low. Wow, okay, that's really low. Yeah. So you can't really compete with that because they could literally buy 20 times the amount of impressions for the same price as the bigger shows. Yeah, but for the direct response advertiser, they still need to know on a show-by-show -show basis which shows pull and which shows don't. And when you sell them five or 6,000 podcasts that are aggregated, it creates a huge problem for them. So and they can't track it. Yeah, until they have tracking of their own, it probably is cumbersome. But you always start a business at the highest possible level. You know, you start a business by having great talents, if you're in the talent business, that will attract a lot of people to your platform or your site, and then try and expose them to more and more and more and more and build traffic. 
I mean, there's 350,000 or 375,000 podcasts on the Apple podcast app. Yeah. And the average audience, I'm told, for all those podcasts is around 100. I'm surprised it's that high. It might be lower. Yeah. I had actually heard 80, but I thought I'd give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, sure. Round up. Yeah. So the number of podcasts that are delivering six and seven figures, probably, you know, maybe less than 500. Oh, yeah. I would imagine that's true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it has to be. I think it probably is. You know, we're a private company, so we don't have to give out our revenue figures and yeah. stuff like that. So we don't. And everybody else is pretty much a private company with the exception of one player that I know of who was bought by a public company. So I have to disclose their revenue in the broadest sense. But people who know the podcast industry say that it's uh, at about $200 million right now, which is a big jump. You know, I think when I got in it, it was maybe 30. Oh, yeah, sure. Maybe. Because the biggest shows, even if you subtract or especially if you subtract NPR. Right. It just takes a huge chunk. And they're kind of supported by tax dollars and also have all those terrestrial radios that funnel traffic to the podcast. So it's a little bit of a different animal in a way. Yeah, they were the first ones there. Yeah. They repurposed a lot of really popular radio shows and recognized the importance of on-demand to their audience. Sure. Who's generally upscale and affluent and what have you. And they want to listen to it when they want to listen to it. They were sort of late to the party in using the technology to provide dynamic insertion sure. and what have you. But the quality of their programming is unassailable. You know, it's really good programming. Now they're doing more and more podcasts. So maybe there are some programs that you wouldn't think of as being as good as the stuff that's being done by NPR or by their affiliates, WNYC, or by their former employees who have gone out on their own because they're now much more interested in it as a profit-making venture than they used to be. You know, if Donald Trump has his way, that's the only place they're going to get money. Yeah, absolutely. That'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. When you got in the radio business, personalities started to become more of a thing. Is that true, or did that happen beforehand? Personalities were much more important when I got into the radio business because disc jockeys, and I'm not talking about, you know, when I say DJ today to a bunch of people, they think I'm talking about some guy at a club, right? you know, who's uh, spinning records and putting right. together mixes. Disc jockeys were personalities who connected with their audience, and they were stars. When Casey Kasem worked for a local radio station in Los Angeles, he was a star because the size of the audience that he generated for his program would probably be more than cable networks you know, deliver today with the number of different uh, alternatives that are available to listeners. How did you wrangle the talent back then? Because if they're all stars, they probably acted like it too. Well, some of them did. Most of them didn't, to tell you the truth. Really? Yeah, most of them were not appreciated enough by the local stations that they worked for. The opportunity to go out and do something national and get compensated at a higher level the local radio stations didn't, as they do now, because they're part of big broadcast groups, they don't try and dissuade their personalities from doing podcasts because it was a way for them to generate additional revenue that the broadcast company didn't have to put up. You know, today, broadcast companies will try and lock up every single right that they can, whether they're going to be able to monetize it or not. What took some people further and others 
maybe hitting a wall. Aside from talent and work ethic, what sort of factors did you see making or breaking talent? Well, if you separate aside from talent and work ethic, yeah. what else is there? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's what I was asking. You yeah. Know? No, I'm not aware of any magic bullets. In video, they could look funny. Sure. <laughs> you know? Sure. They could have something that visually makes people want to uh, look at them. You know, maybe something like, I don't know, Kim Kardashian's butt. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I'm with the radio equivalent. Yeah. 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 No, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people tune in just to experience that. Sure. Okay. Yeah. In radio, radio's theater of the mind. No disrespect to any other female DJs who were there at the time. There weren't a lot of them, but Mary looked as good as she sounded. So when I met Mary, I also thought about the possibilities for video. I was already planning things that would put Mary into video, not realizing that Mary didn't really give a damn about video (laughs) (laughs) and that she didn't want to do that. And she was the furthest thing from an egomaniac that you could find. She liked doing it and she liked to be paid for doing it. It's funny because when I met her, she was kind of quiet. I met her again. She was kind of quiet. And so when I found out she was in radio, I was a little surprised. That's what happens when you're married to Norm for 35 years. You just he just talks over you, and then that's it. Well, <laughs> it's not exact. Mary never says anything that isn't worth saying. She's less likely to engage in small talk. Yeah. But when you're sitting with Mary, and you're talking about a heady subject, and she knows something about it, you know, she'll tell you. Yeah, that's great. You know, she's had an interesting past. I mean, uh, she went back to school in her 50s to get her master's degree and her PhD in psychology, uh, was asked to be on the board of the Betty Ford Center, and eventually became the chairman of the board of the Betty Ford Center, was uh, one of the engineers of the merger of the Betty Ford Center, together with Hazelden, creating really the largest, you know, addiction specialists in the country. She takes it very seriously. I mean, I was talking about some dates for going to Australia, because we've never been to Australia, always wanted to go to Australia. And Podcast One now has a partnership in Australia with a very large media company, we're going to officially launch Podcast One Australia in September. And they gave me a date and it worked out fine for me. And I threw it to Mary because I thought it'd be an opportunity for us to stick around and go see some things. Sure. And she said, no, I got a board meeting. Oh, man. Yeah. When are you going to Australia? Sometime in September. Oh, okay. Because I'm going in November. Are you? Yeah. 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 I'm going to give a talk out there. And I thought, oh, it'd be kind of cool to hang out in Australia. Yeah. One of the things that we're going to do when we're over there is probably take Adam Carolla. Oh, cool. Who, who you know very well. Sure, and yeah. He's on our network. Probably take him there because there's a number of promoters that would like to have him to do live shows and stand up and stuff like that. Oh, that's cool. When we're over there, it'll be good for him business-wise and it'll be fun. Yeah, I think uh, I'll try to do some morning shows or whatever that they've got there. Sure. One of the AOC fans, she's a PR or publicist down there, and she does all, books a lot of the morning shows. So I said it was coming to Australia. She offered to set some of that up. So I'm pretty excited about it. I mean, Australia is an untapped market. Selling that audience, you can't sell it for as much. Right. And if you're going to be a company that's in this business that focuses on tech and builds your own tech, you better have deep pockets. Yeah. Because it changes every three months. Sure. That's why we've chosen to have exclusive relationships with suppliers of tech who build solutions for what we need and can adapt very quickly. 
uh, you know, will we at some point have our own tech? Maybe. But right now, we'd rather focus on content and growing uh, the company the way we did at Westwood One. You were chairman of the Middle East Committee, BBG's Middle East Committee. Right. And you created this Arabic language radio and TV. Is it satellite that broadcasts to the Middle East and things like that? So that, to me, was a, almost out of left field. You got appointed by Clinton and then Bush also to policy positions. How did you get into those circles with his presidential figures? Well, you know, I was politically active during the Clinton presidencies. And so, you know, I mean, let's face it, if you're writing big checks, you get access. At least they know who you are. And oftentimes when they're putting their administration together and there are appointments to be made, you know, they'll ask you if there's something in particular that, especially if it's not a full-time job or not a paid job, because I didn't get paid for this. It actually cost me a fortune, what you might be interested in doing. And I was aware of the Broadcasting Board of Governors, which was the the group that was responsible for U.S. international broadcasting, the Voice of America, sure. Radio Free Europe, and all of the U.S. non-military um, broadcast properties. So I said I wouldn't mind being a, a member of the BBG because I took a look at the membership of the board and I didn't see a broadcaster on it. There were a lot of people who were on it for different reasons, but I didn't see a broadcaster. And I thought, well, I'm a broadcaster, you know, and I've had, you know, I've had a fair amount of success. And I think that, you know, I can give a, a look to what's currently being done and maybe even make some suggestions on how to make it better. And that's exactly what happened. And so in the process, they made me the chairman of the Middle East Committee, where there really was not a major presence for U.S. broadcasting in the 22 countries of the Middle East, which were in Arabic, or in Iran, which was in the Persian Gulf, which was programming that was in mostly Farsi and some Pashtun. Look, I'm not responsible for the policy content or anything like that, but what I did know how to do was format radio stations and a cable network to reach the biggest audience that it could possibly reach so that whatever mission the BBG had, which was really to promote freedom and democracy through being as an example of a free press in the American tradition, those people who came up with that content would at least be talking to somebody. Sure. You know, sure. So we were able to do that. And so essentially this kind of gets beamed into these countries. You make a political donation and then they turn around, they know who you are, and then they select you for this. What did you get out of that? I guess I don't understand what was it just an interesting way to work with people in power or, or what? Well, here's what I got out of it. First of all, I was well-to-do enough that I didn't need to make more money. Right. So when that's the case and you're politically active and you do, you know, I care about. I care about the planet. I care about what's going on across the planet. There's a number of things that I care about that have to do with really much bigger subjects or platforms. And I wanted to be able to, in some way, use what I knew to give back. Yeah. So that I could take services like the Voice of America Arabic service, which at its peak had a listening audience of maybe 2 million oh, a wow. across 22 countries of the Middle East. Yeah. Through using basic Western techniques and bringing it to government, we were able to get an audience of upwards of 40 million. You know, I thought that was a 
a terrific accomplishment. If you wanted to place a dollar value on something like that in the private sector, that probably would have been worth what, at least what creating Westwood One was worth. Sure. But that's not something you get paid for. As a matter of fact, I didn't want to take reimbursement from the government for doing that. So when I chartered planes and stayed in hotels and what have you, you know, that was coming out of my pocket. So I probably spent a couple of million dollars doing that. But I could afford it. I can afford it now. I could afford to take a flyer in something that was really, really interesting podcasting. Now, you know, I may very well reap some economic benefit from that, but I don't reap any economic benefit from being a regent of the University of California. Yeah. I don't get anything from being the chairman of the National Security Labs at Los Alamos. Yeah, I saw that. Livermore. Norm's a spy. What's going on there? What's that all about? Well, it's about being able to experience different things and growing because of it. When I was building Westwood One, I had no time to do anything else. It was total focus, especially because it was a public company, on building that enterprise and building shareholder value right. and advertising revenue and all of that stuff and trying to find you know ways to have a little fun along the way. But the bigger it gets, the less opportunity for fun you get. Sure. But being able, because of, you know, my success in the media business, to be able to go out and be of service to my country in ways that are hard to describe unless you've been there. I mean, that is a gift. That is a real gift. And so I've been really fortunate and blessed to be in a position where I could take advantage of these opportunities Look, uh, the University of California has operated those national security laboratories, you know, basically the nuclear weapons labs, but they do a hell of a lot more than just nuclear stockpile security. To be in a position to be able to be the chairman of those labs, mostly because it had to be a regent. A regent had to be the chairman of the board because of the, uh, the way our partnerships were set up with the government and our private sector partners. And the reason I got it was that I was the only one who was interested in it. <laughs> and now it's been, I don't know, 12 years. Yeah. And there still aren't a lot of people who are interested in it. But I've said to them, look, you guys, I can't do this forever. You know, we got to find somebody. And, and so we're setting about, you know, looking for my replacement now. But it's been, you know, the kind of experiences that, you know, you just wouldn't get. Yeah. If you weren't in a position to get them. Yeah, it's incredible. And it's great to hear that it's because of growth. I, I mean, that's what the show is all about. I read somewhere that you said you've never had a bad job, and I almost, I just can't believe it, because it seems like coming up in Hollywood, coming up in LA, it's like a rite of passage to have terrible jobs for terrible people for at least a little while until you pay your dues or something like that. I always had the attitude that it was up to you to make the job cool. I remember when I was uh, 17, 18 years old, I was working in a gas station. I thought working in a gas station was cool. You know, I, I watched a lot of television sure. programs. There were people working in gas yeah. stations, and I thought it was a cool way to make a living, just like when I was in the martial arts and studying the martial arts. And uh, I thought it was cool to be, get to the point where I could teach it and also cool to be able to work in clubs where I could be the doorman, check IDs. Yeah, I had know. that job. Yeah. yeah. You know that job? We're the two smallest guys that have ever had that job. Probably. Yeah, but being small is an advantage in that job because nobody's going to come along to see if they can kick the butt 
of the six foot six inch bouncers, you know, to be able to create another notch on their belt. You know, who's going to get a notch on your belt for beating you up? Nobody. Or, or me. For zero, zero. Absolutely no one will get a notch. Yeah. yeah. And if you worked in a place where they had a band right after the groupies waited around for the band, the doorman was a pretty good catch, too. <laughs> <laughs> I must have missed that bus. Yeah. Yeah. I heard, and this could be BS, so call it if it is, but I heard that you have a nickel-plated forty-four Magnum. Do you carry that around? No, I, it is bullshit. I, okay. I don't have a nickel-plated forty-four Magnum, but... You got a copper-plated forty-four Magnum? No, I do have a forty-four Magnum, but it's uh, black. <laughs> got it. And the reason that I have, you know, weapons of any kind is that... I've been a, a reserve sheriff for the last probably 15 years and 10 years before that. I was a reserve in the Culver City Police Department. Yeah, I never thought I want to grow up to be a cop. You know, I didn't have a problem with cops. I, it just wasn't something that I thought I wanted to do. Sure. But then came the Rodney King riots in L.A. In the 90, early 90s. Yeah. 93? Was um, it? I don't know. I think it's been like, uh, isn't it the 25th anniversary or something of that? Yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. So yeah. 92, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. So during that period, I had a home in Beverly Hills on a hill with a balcony. And when I would stand on that balcony during those riots, you could see the fires moving west. Okay. Oh, wow. Moving west. And I knew at that time that if I needed a policeman, a fireman, or an ambulance, I was pretty much out of luck. Yeah. And that's when I thought, you know, it's really up to you to take care of you and your own. Yeah. So I went to the police chief of Culver City, who I knew because Westwood One was in Culver City at the time, exactly where you would expect a company called sure. Westwood One to be in Culver City. But we were there and we were there for many years. And I knew the police chief and I went to him and I said, look, what do I have to do to get a weapons permit? Because I wanted to have a gun, you know, in case there was another riot and the only person standing between me and my family was me. It was you, yeah. yeah. And he said, I can give you a weapons permit, providing you would agree to become a reserve here in Culver City. And I said, pointing at myself, what can I do? Yeah. And he said, um, See those riots over there? Come yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. He, <laughs> go didn't need, he didn't need me for that. He said, look, you're a well-known member of the community. You're in the media and entertainment business. We have fundraising events. We have outreach to the community. You could be really helpful in those areas. In return, you'll be a reserve, and I'll give you your weapons permit. And I will also make all of the training that we give to our reserves available to you. Great. It sounded interesting. Yeah, sure. I would do that in a second. Yeah. That sounds awesome. And I did, and I got all the training. And also, I met a whole group of people that I wouldn't have met or known otherwise, some of whom have become some of my best and longest lasting friends. And then when that police chief left, the new police chief came in and said, how many of you reserves haven't gone through the sheriff's academy? And I hadn't gone through the sheriff's academy, so I raised my hand. And he says, well, you got to do it. So I went to the sheriff's academy. I knew the sheriff. And he saw that I was going to the Sheriff's Academy. He said, well, I, I didn't know this would interested you. And I said, well, I didn't either. Sure. Except a few years ago, this happened. And he said, well, look, why don't you stay as a reserve in the Sheriff's Department? Because you have a lot of skills that I know about from your business that would be very helpful 
to the sheriff's department that probably don't mean anything to the Culver City Police Department. Sure. So I stayed. And now you've got a podcast for the sheriff's department. I do. I do. If anybody wants to hear the sheriff's department podcast hosted by yours truly and be among the 10 or 12 other people (laughs) who are consuming it, go to a podcast one or iTunes and look up KMA 628. And that means something for sheriffs? That's sort of the uh, call sign for the L.A. Sheriff's Department in KMA talk. Got it. Norm, thank you very much, man. This has been super interesting. I'm glad we got a chance to do this. Look, it's been fun for me, and um, and I just want to wish you continued success because um, you're really killing it. Yeah, thank you. Great big thank you to Norm for doing that. You can check out more from Podcast One at podcastone.com or even grab the Podcast One app in iTunes for this show and many others. So check that out at podcastone.com slash apps. Remember, if you want to see the show notes for this episode, you can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players. To see the show notes for this episode, we'll link to the show notes directly on your phone. Our live programs, our boot camps are available at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. Well, the bootcamp isn't, but the info is. We're each art projects. Look, we can curate our input. We can curate those around us to shape our future selves. I know it sounds a little woo-woo, but look at the people that we surround ourselves with here at AOC, the people we have on the show. The Art of Charm is the study of how this is done and how to do it for ourselves, and that's what you're gonna learn at Bootcamp. Join thousands of people who've made the journey to really learning mastery over themselves, charisma, body language, nonverbal communication. Super rewarding to see people go through this. Remember, we're sold out a few months in advance, so if you're thinking about it a little bit, get in touch ASAP, get some info from us so you can plan ahead. Again, theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp for info on that. And if you're military or intelligence agency affiliated, check out EliteHumanDynamics.com for more information on programs we have that are designated especially for you. That's EliteHumanDynamics.com. We've also got our AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or you can text us, text the word charmed, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. That's texting the word charmed, charmed, to 33444. The challenge is about improving your networking and connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. It's free, a lot of people may not know that. It's also a fun way to get the ball rolling, get some forward momentum. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, which includes some great practical stuff ready to apply right out of the box on reading body language, having charismatic nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking and influence strategies, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. This will make you a better connector, it'll make you a better networker, and of course, it'll make you a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text charmed, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, here to 33444. For full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. Theme music by Little People. Transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Word of mouth really is everything. So share the show with your friends, share the show with your enemies, stay charming, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.